Hi, this is Adam Day, and welcome to our fifth episode of Hybrid Wars. If you're joining us for the first time, it's probably a good idea to go back to our first episode, where we get into the question of what the term hybrid war means. But if you want to jump in here, that's fine too. Welcome. Before we get started, another shout out to UK Aid, the part of the British government that funded our fieldwork to Iraq, Nigeria, and Somalia. Today, we're doing our second episode on Iran. In case you missed it, last show we got into the origins of ISIS, and I spoke to Fanar Haddad about Iraq's popular mobilization units, local defense forces that sprang up to fight ISIS when it started sweeping across Iraq in 2014. Today, we're going to look at another aspect of ISIS's role in Iraq, the people who lived in ISIS-controlled areas. What happens to regular citizens who wake up one day to find that ISIS has taken over their city? What happens to them once ISIS leaves? What about women who married ISIS fighters, either by choice or by force? How about the Iraqis who worked for ISIS because there was no other real choice? As Iraq's government has gradually pushed ISIS out of most of the country, the question of what to do in formerly ISIS-controlled towns has become an extraordinarily difficult one. Here's my colleague, Dr. Siobhan O'Neill, detailing some fieldwork that she undertook with our guest on the podcast this week. And this highlights how complex some of these issues can be on an individual level. We interviewed a 17-year-old named Anar, that's not his real name, um, who had uh, gone to work in a quite dangerous factory at the age of 12, left school because Islamic State had killed his father, who was an Iraqi police officer. And then five years later, the Islamic State came to him and offered him money uh, to cook for Islamic State fighters. And though, even though they had killed his father, um, he was now the main breadwinner for a family of seven. And so for him, um, it, there were no other options to support his family. To help us understand these questions, I spoke to Mara Revkin, one of our researchers on our Limits of Punishment project. Check it out on our website. Thanks, Adam. Um, my name's um, Mara Revkin. I'm the National Security Law Fellow at the Georgetown University Law Center. For the past several years, I've been doing research on the Islamic State's system of governance in Iraq and Syria, as well as um, after the collapse of IS, efforts to um, reintegrate uh, individuals who are perceived as affiliated with IS, um, as well as to hold accountable those who committed serious crimes um, during their time with the group. I've also been doing more recent work on efforts to uh, strengthen rule of law and advanced security sector reform in Iraq, um, particularly in areas um, that were recaptured from the Islamic State in 2017. So let's start with what you were looking at for the Limits of Punishment Project, the main conflict dynamics. What aspects of the Islamic State were most important to your research for this particular project? What made Islamic State distinct? We went into this uh, project realizing that a really unique feature of the Islamic State was its control and governance of territory. And this made IS um, just structurally and organizationally very different from other uh, military or terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda that um, commit uh, large-scale violence um, against civilians but don't actually control and govern territory. So the fact that IS was controlling and governing 20 major cities in Iraq had really important implications for the 
the many different types of people who came to be associated with the group. So some residents um, of these areas that were captured by IS were cooperating with the group um, because they genuinely supported it, uh, whether for ideological or opportunistic material reasons. Um, but many other people, and, and probably most people, were only co cooperating with IS um, because they needed to do that in order to survive. Uh, resistance was punishable by death um, and therefore uh, futile and very dangerous. Another um, dynamic we looked at in the report was the stigmatization of uh, a group of people we called stayers, those who decided to stay in IS-controlled territory as opposed to fleeing to areas still under the control of the Iraqi government. So leaving these areas um, controlled by IS was often not an option um, because of the heavy cost of resettlement elsewhere or threats of violence by IS. But there was still a perception among many Iraqis in other parts of the country that these people who they thought voluntarily stayed in IS-controlled territory were um, de facto collaborators and complicit in all of IS's crimes just by virtue of living there and, and providing um, material support by working in IS's civilian institutions like hospitals and schools. Um, and paying taxes. Kale Saleh, the lead author of the Limits of Punishment research that I mentioned earlier, described it like this during a briefing at the UN. Individuals play a wide range of roles in association with groups that are deemed terrorist, and a large percentage of these roles are nonviolent. In most cases, their involvement is not purely voluntary. Rather, it takes place along a continuum of coercion. For example, Millions of people who lived under the Islamic State in Iraq had to pay taxes to the group on penalty of death. Foreign children have traveled with their parents to states like Iraq and Syria, or have been born there. Some, especially older children, may have been trained by ISIL to play support roles. So justice responses must be nuanced enough to address the spectrum of individual involvement, including those cases in which the lines between victim and perpetrator are blurred. So there are different categories of people who live under ISIS. You can imagine a spectrum. At one end is a diehard pro-ISIS guy who joins the group as soon as it comes into town, fights on the front lines, participates fully in the group by choice. At the other end of the spectrum might be a woman who was forced to marry an ISIS fighter who had no choice and who didn't really participate in the fighting at all. The point is there is a huge difference between those two so-called members of ISIS, and there's a lot of gray area in between. Imagine someone who cooked for ISIS during the years they occupied a town. Does it matter whether the cook was forced to work for ISIS or did it voluntarily? Is anything really voluntary in an ISIS-controlled area? What about a woman who traveled all the way to Iraq and chose to marry an ISIS fighter? This is one of the reasons why holding an organization like IS accountable, um, IS being an organization that governs people and territory, is a really different challenge from holding accountable members of a terrorist group like Al-Qaeda, which is an exclusively military organization where all people associated with the group are generally um, either fighters or people providing direct support to fighters like logistical support or drivers um, or cooks. In contrast, um, IS had this entire... Uh, so in in addition to the uh, fighters and combatants, um, that's the best known type of affiliation. Um, there's a whole spectrum of other types of affiliation. Um, we had relatives of IS members um, who didn't really have a choice in whether or not they were related to people who decided to join IS. Some of those people um, 
there, there were some women who married IS fighters uh, somewhat voluntarily and somewhat under coercion. So there is variation in kind of the voluntariness of family associations. Um, but children, you know, who were born to IS fighters didn't really have any control um, uh, over uh, what their parents um, did. Uh, another important category of, of affiliate, affiliates um, are the employees of IS's administrative and service providing institutions like schools, hospitals, and departments of municipal services and taxation. So um, when IS captured new territory, the group usually replaced the senior management of local institutions, but allowed lower ranking employees to keep their jobs, um, sometimes conditional and swearing an oath of allegiance. Um, but, but employees of the Department of Municipal Services or taxation didn't actually receive any uh, military training or carry weapons. So um, in general, a lot of IS's administrative workforce um, consisted of Syrians and Iraqis who had um, previously been working in those institutions and just kept doing the same jobs, the same civilian jobs, um, but under new management when IS took over. With every retaken town, soldiers comb through the fleeing crowds looking for Daesh fighters. But there are fears that their families, mostly women and children, are being swept up in the crackdown. This is the detention site where Daesh family members are being held. Rights groups say conditions inside are unhygienic, that women and children aren't free to move around, and say their detention goes against international law. These distinctions matter a lot. If the Iraqi government decides that you really were part of ISIS, the punishment is death, often minutes after a very short trial. There are reports of dozens of women being executed en masse after a judge found they were ISIS wives. And one of the criticisms of the government is that it has cast too broad a net, catching too many people who had no choice but to join ISIS in one way or another. In general, the Iraqi government's approach um, to accountability for these very different types of IS affiliates has been criticized for being uh, not sufficiently um, granular in differentiating between ty different types of crimes or affiliation, and also um, not doing enough to prioritize the prosecution of more serious crimes over lesser offenses. And uh, this dynamic is really being driven by Iraq's anti-terrorism law, which criminalizes membership in a terrorist group alone without requiring proof of any specific cr criminal act. So under this law, anyone with a plausible connection to IS, including unarmed civilian employees and family members, can very easily be sentenced to life in prison, which is the minimum punishment allowed by the law. Uh, and the maximum um, sentence, of course, is the death penalty. So I I've interviewed a number of Iraqi judges about their attitudes toward the prosecution of IS affiliates, as well as their interpretation of the anti terrorism law. And in general, these judges take a very zero tolerance, one punishment fits all approach, which seems to be inspired by deterrence based theories of criminal justice and counterterrorism. Um, this is a very harsh approach. As one Iraqi judge explained his sentencing philosophy to me, IS's ideology is so dangerous that we cannot afford to show any leniency, even for those who were only believers and did not commit specific crimes. So that comes very close to basically promoting um, the punishment of thought crimes or mere kind of ideological support or um, belief in, in IS, um, uh, regardless of specific acts of violence or crimes that were committed. So I think what you're saying, Mara, is that a harsh approach isn't necessarily going to have the intended effect, which should be to deter people 
from joining ISIS, right? Yeah, I think that this um, very harsh uh, deterrence-based approach is problematic um, because in general, theories of deterrence um, have not been rigorously tested and might actually be counterproductive, particularly in the counterterrorism context. So we know anecdotally that many of IS's senior leaders were first radicalized in American-run um, prisons in Iraq during the early 2000s. So I think we really need to um, need more research on whether the benefits of incarceration really outweigh its significant costs and likely negative consequences, and whether there are other uh, more restorative justice mechanisms like community service or public apologies and truth-telling mechanisms that might be more effective, at least in the cases of nonviolent IS affiliates uh, like cleaners. Whether or not these kinds of punishments for ISIS affiliates work is an open question, but one thing seems quite clear. Many Iraqis strongly support very harsh punishments for some ISIS fighters. But did you find that Iraqis wanted to distinguish between the hardcore ISIS fighter and a woman who was forced to become an ISIS bride, for example? This was a survey of a random sample of more than 1,400 residents of Mosul that I conducted with my co-author Kristen Gao in March of 2018. And um, we asked respondents about their preferences for punishment and reintegration of several types of hypothetical IS collaborators that varied in their demographic characteristics and identity traits. So they varied in their gender and age. Um, and they also varied in their type of affiliation with IS. Um, so the hypothetical scenarios we included um, were of a civilian who paid taxes to IS, the wife of an IS fighter, a janitor who worked in IS's Department of Municipal Services, and a cook for IS fighters. And we then asked respondents what type of punishment, if any, they felt that these different affiliates deserved. And then we asked another set of questions um, about whether they would be willing to allow the reintegration of different types of affiliates, conditional on them receiving different punishments that ranged in severity from um, the most lenient, which was no punishment, to six months in community service to more severe punishments of three or 15 years in prison. Did you have any assumptions going into the survey? Did you think Iraqis would feel strongly one way or the other about punishments? We went into this survey assuming that there would be a lot of support in Mosul for uh, very harsh punishments of IS affiliates, particularly um, those in um, combat roles and, and who might have um, been participating in violence. Um, and we expected that because the Iraqi government in part appears to be basing or claims to be basing its counterterrorism approach on um, public demands for accountability. So um, we expected to find uh, the Iraqi government is also implementing this one punishment fits all approach um, where most people convicted of affiliation with IS, regardless of type of affiliation, are being sentenced um, to um, the death penalty or life in prison, which um, is often interpreted as, as 20 years, um, but still a very long time in prison. So um, we were expecting kind of public opinion to, um, to probably mirror the Iraqi government's approach. But what we found was um, very different and I think really calls into question the Iraqi government's current approach um, and shows that it's inconsistent with public opinion, at least in Mosul, which was where we conducted this survey. So first, um, we found that contrary to the government's one punishment fits all approach, residents of Mosul prefer significantly more lenient punishments um, for lower level and nonviolent affiliates. So whereas most respondents, 78% wanted the death penalty for IS fighters, only 15% of respondents wanted the death penalty for cleaners, um, and 41% thought that cleaners shouldn't be punished at all. 
This points to a big gap between what Iraqi people want in terms of punishment and what the Iraqi government has been doing for the past several years. But it also raises an important question about how to reintegrate people back into communities after they've served time for their role in ISIS. Were the residents of Mosul open to some of these people coming back after serving those sentences? Many Mosul residents are willing to forgive and allow the reintegration of IS collaborators back into their neighborhoods who are subjected to more lenient and restorative punishments, such as community service, than the current anti-terrorism law allows. So, for example, in the case of a hypothetical 35-year-old woman married to an IS fighter, 27% of respondents would allow her reintegration into the community despite receiving no punishment at all, even though Iraqi courts routinely sentence wives of IS fighters to life in prison. For nonviolent affiliates like wives and cooks, a prison sentence of 15 years is no more likely to result in forgiveness and reintegration than a more lenient prison sentence of only three years. And those who serve prison sentences are just as likely to be reintegrated as those who receive an even more lenient punishment of community service. So all in all, these findings suggest that Harsher punishments do not necessarily improve the likelihood of reintegration because the type of collaboration seems to be a much more important factor than the severity of punishment. And this calls into question the effectiveness of harsh deterrence-based theories of criminal justice and counterterrorism and really suggests that we should be exploring um, more restorative and non-carceral options like community service. There's even another option, amnesty. Iraq actually has an amnesty law on the books which could be used for some of the people who were associated with ISIS, but either not seriously involved in fighting or maybe they were coerced into joining. How could the amnesty law help to address some of the problems we've seen? I think that the amnesty law um, definitely does um, have uh, potential to be a useful tool in um, more restorative, um, non-carceral um, approaches to reintegration and rehabilitation. I do think it's going to require um, amendments um, and in the case of um, the Kurdistan regional government, um, new legislation because they don't currently have um, an am amnesty law. So in federal Iraq until recently, um, Iraq's um, had uh, Iraq's amnesty law, which was adopted in 2016, allowed for the pardon of individuals who were convicted of association with IS or other terrorist groups when certain limited conditions were met. Um, so amnesty was allowed if they could demonstrate that they joined IS or another extremist group against their will and did not commit any serious crimes, uh, such as torture or killing, while a member. Um, and this could be interpreted to include a lot of the nonviolent affiliates I mentioned earlier like family members and employees of administrative and service providing institutions like schools and hospitals. In 2017, however, there was a backlash to this law over concerns um, that the amnesty law contained loopholes that would allow the release of dangerous criminals into Iraqi society. As a result of this backlash, the 2016 law was amended to uh, eliminate the provision that had allowed amnesty for some low-level and nonviolent IS members. Since then, some judges have reportedly granted amnesty in a few cases despite the amendment, but amnesty and pardons remain quite rare, making it possible to again pardon um, low-level uh, IS members who haven't committed serious crimes or joined involuntarily um, would be helpful. I also don't want to forget other forms of justice that might be possible in Iraq. You've written a lot about tribal justice, Mara. Can you talk a little bit about what tribal justice might offer? 
Alongside the state legal system, uh, tribal justice um, is playing an important role, but a controversial role in social security and legal issues related to the recapture of territory from IS. So tribalism and tribal law are an integral part of the fabric of Iraqi society and always have been. Many Iraqis prefer to resolve interpersonal disputes through tribal law rather than the state legal system. The strength of tribes and tribal law in many parts of Iraq, um, where tribes are often actually perceived as more legitimate um, and more effective at governance and dispute resolution than, resolution than the state, does raise the question um, of whether uh, tribes are undermining um, state authority and rule of law. Some argue that tribes um, are not, in fact, undermining state authority and are, are important partners in the Iraqi government's efforts to restore stability and social cohesion in areas recaptured from us. And um, in some cases, international organizations and the government are working directly with tribes um, to, um, uh, to facilitate local reconciliation agreements that allow certain um, members of communities who are stigmatized, stigmatized or accused of association with I, um, IS to return peacefully. But in other cases, tribal justice has been a barrier to reconciliation. So in some areas, tribes have been very unwilling to cooperate with state authorities and have insisted on enforcing um, tribal legal, legal doctrines, including um, the requirement of paying um, blood money or banishment of those um, found to be associated with IS. So, for example, in some areas retaken from IS, tribes have engaged in acts of extrajudicial violence um, against suspected IS collaborators that do appear to be at odds um, with important aspects of um, Iraqi constitutional law, um, including the right to a fair trial. My view is that Iraqi tribes are an integral part of uh, Iraqi society um, and needed, in their, in their perspectives, need to be taken into account. Um, but I'm also concerned about lack of due process in the tribal justice system, particularly in IS-related matters, where there's a strong tendency for retribution driven by fear and stigmatization. It seems that what you're pointing to is how complex and difficult it is to address what ISIS has done to Iraq. It has driven deep wedges between communities that will take decades to solve. And by occupying and administering territory for years, ISIS has also created a huge gray area in terms of who are victims and who are perpetrators, who are victims and who are participants, and how can we tease out those differences? I think that um, in Iraq, as is the case in many post-conflict transitional justice processes, there is a tendency to impose this false dichotomy between victims and perpetrators. So the Iraqi from the Iraqi government's perspective, people are either fully innocent or fully guilty. And this perspective doesn't really recognize that many people fall into this gray area uh, in between um, those two extremes. So in reality, the same person can be both a victim and a perpetrator or somewhere on a continuum between those two identity identities and, and therefore very difficult to classify as either. Um, and this gray area is particularly evident in the experiences of wives um, and children of IS members. So if a child is brainwashed into attending an IS boot camp and turns 18 while engaged or while involved with IS, this child was a victim of IS at one point, but could also be considered a perpetrator as an adult combatant. So uh, what we recommend in the report is that Iraqi authorities look beyond um, this very simplistic binary and recognize that IS's coercive control over territory and harsh treatment of dissidents resulted in near universal cooperation. So many people who may appear to be collaborators were acting under conditions of extreme duress um, and may have themselves experienced violence or other crimes at the hands of IS. 
You know, we talk a lot about ISIS in the past tense, but what a lot of Mara's research points to is the continuing risks, the risks of an ISIS 2.0. Last episode, we looked at the origins of ISIS, which were rooted in a disaffected Sunni community following the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. It seems that by cracking down on Sunnis who live in areas formerly occupied by ISIS, there's a risk that those communities will continue to be marginalized. They will feel that the government doesn't represent them, and they might turn to groups like ISIS in the future. Is there a risk of an ISIS 2.0? Much of my research is focused on the root causes of civilian support for and cooperation with IS in Iraq, and I've concluded that grievances with corruption, bad governance, and human rights um, were major drivers of civilian support for IS in 2014, among Sunnis, uh, particularly among Sunnis who felt marginalized by the post-2003 depathification process. Recent surveys I conducted with the International Organization for Migration in Iraq show that um, that these same grievances are still very much present in the areas that were recaptured from IS. So um, the top concerns when you talk to community members in those lo locations are about corruption, are about uh, the quality of basic services, um, sanitation, as well as uh, the quality of healthcare um, and access uh, access to healthcare um, and other. Other, other concerns about bribery and, in some cases, human rights abuses by um, by state uh, by state security forces. So. Um I should also note here um, that these grievances are definitely not limited to the Sunni majority areas in the north. Um, as uh, um, the recent wave of protests in the Shia majority areas of southern and central Iraq demonstrates. Um, so my view really is that the as long as these root causes of IS's rise to power in northern Iraq, um, bad governance, corruption, and human rights abuses are still um, very much present, the risk of an IS um, resurgence in the form of an IS 2.0 or other extremist groups is significant and we are seeing um, uh, an uptake in uh, attacks claimed by or attributed to IS in northern Iraq. Um, uh, we have we have seen um, an uptake in such attacks since December, and I think that's also related to um, a weakening of security in some areas due to um, the concentration of security forces in areas experiencing protests um, further south and in central Iraq. Um, and I also think the instability created by um, the U.S.-Iran tensions um, may have created an opportunity uh, these underground um, cells to um, to kind of uh, try to, to start rebuilding and, and reasserting um, themselves in in um, parts that are where secure of the country where security is weak. That's a pretty bleak picture for Iraq, and it makes me think that a lot of what the government has done in ISIS affected areas might be making things worse. But what should be done today? To address uh, kind of the, the fundamental grievances that fueled support for IS, there really need to be major structural reforms in the uh, areas of governance um, and in the security sector as well. Um, distrust, uh, the levels of distrust in all Iraqi state institutions and particularly security forces are quite high. And when um, people don't trust the government and people don't trust the police, um, they have uh, very little incentive to um, cooperate with state institutions um, and um, may not um, feel that it is necessary um, uh, to um, to respect the laws of the state um, when those laws aren't being um, aren't being enforced um, fairly um, in 
neutrally uh, by by the authorities. I think um, we should be looking at sort of smaller um, incremental um, interventions and reforms to try to gradually um, try to gradually uh, improve the corruption situation and also um, to advance security sector reform. Uh, one such intervention that I'm familiar with is um, a community policing program that's being implemented by the International Organization for Migration in partnership with Iraq's Interior Ministry, which trains Iraqi local police officers in principles of community-oriented policing, including the importance of respect in human rights and gender sensitivity. And I think um, I'm working with them on some research, and we're finding some evidence that at the community level, um, this program is having a positive impact on uh, community members' perceptions of the police. And the hope is that then um, if, if public opinion toward the police is improving, public opinion toward the overall state um, and beliefs in the legitimacy of the state will improve as well. Of course, we shouldn't and we can't forget the pandemic. Obviously, most people are focused on the staggering downsides of COVID-19. But might there be a silver lining when it comes to how Iraq responds? I do think that how um, the Iraqi government responds to the current COVID um, crisis has some important implications for perceptions of government legitimacy, as well as um, the possibility of uh, renewal of protests going forward. I think um, there have been some concerning reports that security forces are accompanying public health officials uh, to enforce some of the COVID-19 related measures, um, are also accompanying them to um, disinfect and sanitize public spaces. And I do think that this gives the impression of a bit of a securitized response uh, that may give the impression of um, that the Iraqi government is perhaps using COVID-19 as a pretext um, to justify uh, repression of protests um, and is also perhaps contributing to um, some of the stigmatization of COVID-19 um, of, of uh, patients that's been reported in, in parts of Iraq. The COVID-19 crisis has shown that the effectiveness of governance and the quality of services is really closely connected to national security. So um, as we've seen around the world, COVID-19 has killed uh, many more people this year than terrorism. Iraqi authorities have actually released at least 16,000 prisoners um, from jails across the country. Uh, these are low-level offenders who were not convicted of, of um, violent crimes. And uh, I'm wondering, actually, if this um, this move toward decarceration and the release of low-level offenders could actually provide some leverage for restarting or, or reopening a conversation about amnesty and release of lower-level IS affiliates, um, because I think there's increasing concern um, that prisons are, um, are, are very dangerous um, sites for the spread of the virus, um, and these also pose public health risks to the communities around the prisons. And so I think if, if there is a move um, to decarcerate uh, other types of criminals, um, I don't see why this can't uh, also be used to sort of help restart the conversation about amnesty and more lenient non-carceral approaches to IS affiliates. Thanks so much to Mara Refkin for sharing her insights based on years of field research about the situation in Iraq and the risks that ISIS posed when they took over, how those risks are continuing today. This has been the fifth episode of Hybrid Wars. Thanks so much for joining, and I hope to see you on the next show. This is a United Nations University Center for Policy Research podcast recording. The views expressed are those of the speakers.